Welcome to the Human Experience Podcast, the only podcast designed to fuse your left and right brain hemispheres and feed it the most entertaining and mentally engaging topics on the planet. As we approach our ascent, please make sure your frontal, temporal and occipital lobes are in their full upright position. As you take your seat of consciousness, relax your senses and allow us to take you on a journey. We are the Intimate Strangers. Thank you for listening. Why do I listen to the Human Experience Podcast? The most easy and most perhaps cop-out answer I can give right off the bat is that my life is my own human experience. So already the title is relatable. So then you start listening or I start listening and I'm hearing about things that aren't really talked about and subjects that don't quite come up because they're considered, I don't know, what's the word, taboo, perhaps? Especially from where I'm from. I'm from Texas, and not not to hate on Texas, but I am surrounded by a lot of people who are, how do I say, not everyone is as open-minded. Any podcast that encourages you to be open-minded, in my opinion, is a positive thing. The other thing I really enjoy is that no matter what the subject matter is, the conversation is always captivating to listen to. I try to find podcasts that are very easy to understand and easy to listen to, but not so easy that it's like they're dumbing it down for me. And I think this podcast has a very fine balance of that. The, the interviews and the subject matter are stimulating, and they're things I didn't really know about. So I find myself learning an immense amount, but it's not straining. It's not draining. It doesn't make me exhausted. And to be honest, you know, when I am working all day and I have to spend, you know, what, two hours a day in traffic, maybe three, I don't want to be drained even more by something that I'm choosing to listen to. I can be passive and just listen to these two people connecting and maybe disconnecting sometimes, but at the end of it all, it's a positive experience, it's stimulating, and my ears enjoy it. So really, what I'm trying to say is that there's no reason not to listen to this podcast. So why not just listen? And if you're a human, and you have experiences, and you want to have more transcendent experiences, I think the human experience is giving the tools that people could need. If you're at the human experience, I just want you to know you guys are awesome, you rock, and keep doing what you're doing. You know, this is just a testament to our commitment to bring you guys life-changing stuff that will affect your life in a positive way. And, you know, my my deepest, most grateful, heart-melting thanks to Hannah Lore who submitted this for us. and. Wow, uh, what a huge, huge testament to everything we're doing here. So hopefully you guys enjoyed this little blurb of her telling us why she listens to HXP and it motivates you to become a member of what we're doing. Thanks, guys.
What's up, guys? Xavier Katana here, and this is our episode with Jamie Wheel of the Flow Genome Project. The book is called Stealing Fire, How Silicon Valley, the Navy SEALs, and Maverick Scientists are revolutionizing the way we live and work, and we get into so many different aspects of just human biology and how to get into flow state so so much of just information you're probably going to want to listen to this more than once just because jamie when you put him on a track he just he just runs with it which i i loved i was just steering the wheel you know and jamie did really well and we crushed this interview so definitely pick up a copy of this book get to human xp slash members for the members content part we get into some personal stuff between jamie and steven how how they work together you're gonna want to hear that thank you guys so much for listening the human experience is in session my guest today is mr jamie wheel jamie it's an honor so welcome to hxp uh, thanks for having me. So, Jamie, the book is called Stealing Fire, and we've had your partner in crime, Stephen Kotler, on. Tell us about your background and how you got into this book and, you know, more about you. Sure. Well, I mean, you know, the, the book itself is really about this, the kind of this underground revolution in hacking states of consciousness and performance that's sort of happening all around the world right now in some of the most elite and well-known organizations we've all heard of. And no one's really telling that story. And the way that Stephen and I sort of stumbled on to this, to this, this revolution, really, was because of our work as co-founders of the Flow Genome Project, which is an organization dedicated to the research and training of optimum human performance, those moments of flow or being in the zone where, you know, sort of self-awareness drops away, we, we get dropped into the present moment, and typically our performance and our satisfaction with that performance uh, just goes off the charts. And we had found ourselves working with some, you know, true, you know, blessed to be with some of the sort of the 1% of the 1%. And that was everyone from uh, special operations community in the military to the U.S. Naval War College to uh, professional extreme athletes to folks working in Fortune 100 companies at the executive level, engineering teams, you know, solving hard problems, big five consulting firms. So, so basically anybody who was looking to go from A to A++. In doing that, we had really taken a fairly deep dive. There had been a lot of work in the 70s and 80s and even 90s on the psychology of being in slow states. And that was largely pioneered by Dr. Mihai Csikszentmihalyi and others. But it was how do these states make us feel? What does it feel like when we're in them? What does it feel like when we're not in them? And in the last decade or so, there's been this uh, sort of concomitant rise in neurobiology. The ability to measure what's happening, not just report how it feels. Mm -hmm. And so really, I would, I would suggest that probably our biggest contribution to the field has been integrating those two things, the neurobiology under the hood and the psychology of peak performance. And that sort of leaves us with more tools. But what we didn't realize we had assembled was a sort of accidental Rosetta Stone that let us translate a whole host of additional non-ordinary experiences. And what, what I mean by that is, is that when we would be working with these organizations and saying, hey, here's flow and here's peak performance and here's how you presumably get more of it, um, folks were coming up to us after those conversations. They were you know, coming, following up with phone calls or after dinner or a few beers and say, hey, by the way, um, I'm trying this other thing. I'm going on an extended nine-day Vipassana retreat. 
or I'm doing, you know, Wim Hof breathing method, you know, methods and ice baths, or I'm zapping my brain with electrodes, or I'm stacking off prescription pharmaceuticals, or my engineering team is microdosing psychedelics, or I've just come back from this meditation and sexuality retreat, is that flow. <laughs> and so we were, we were sort of torn because we were like, well, we totally get what you're saying. You are creating a non-ordinary state by these things you're doing. It appears to be valuable and useful. But we were sort of in this quandary where like either we were going to stretch the death of working definition of flow so far that none of the academics who helped develop the field would ever recognize it. Or we had to come up with a bigger tent, <laughs> you know, a little bit like Roy Scheider and George, like we're going to need a bigger boat. So the bigger boat, we, we, we thought of, we're like, OK, now what should we call all this? Because, you know, bless their hearts. The kind of baby boomer hippie generation really did kind of run some of this terminology and these concepts into the ground. Right. So most most of their languaging was kind of loaded with baggage. So we're like, all right, we got to rewind the clock all the way back to word origins. Let's go back to the ancient Greeks. And the best term that we found to kind of encompass this stuff neutrally was ecstasis. And, and the literal translation of that is to move out of oneself. And we thought, all right, so it's the antecedent of the word ecstasy and a lot of you know, terms we're familiar with. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of like just kind of getting it back to that kind of new value neutral term, those states or experiences that take us outside of ourselves. Now we had a big enough tent. Now we could look at all these non-ordinary states of consciousness and that Rosetta Stone piece, which was, hey, here's the neurobiology underneath the psychology. Let us say, wow. A lot of these things, I mean, think about everything as strange as a soccer mom who's got a kundalini yoga practice and is reading Fifty Shades of Grey on her lunch break on her Kindle, <laughs> right? Who's basically looking to hack kinky sex, and there's tons of research from, you know, from the Netherlands and from elsewhere on the, the flow state experiences and the neurochemical shifts of those practices, yeah. right? All the way to biohacking crossfitters, you know, drinking bulletproof coffee and, and zapping themselves all the way to hedge fund traders right, using magnetic stimulation to military operations guys using float tanks, right, to the engineers microdosing, all these things. We we're like, oh, you guys are actually shared, you're shared conspirators in an underground revolution in consciousness, and you wouldn't even recognize each other walking down the street. In fact, so many of you are in these subcultures that are that never the twain shall meet, that you guys would swear blind, that you would never engage in half of the practices or behaviors or customs of these other sub-tribes, but you roll them all together with that Rosetta Stone kind of decoder ring, and yeah. we're like, oh, God, this is everywhere, yeah. and no one's talking about it. That's really truly fascinating, and there's you know there's there's so much of my life where I'm I'm talking about this with my friends and the people that I encounter about flow state. So you know, let's define this for the people who are listening. How do we define being in a flow state? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I mean, it's almost you know like a lot of the kind of ancient wisdom traditions. It can almost be as helpful to define it by negation by what it's not. And what and what flow states and all of these non-ordinary states that we talk about in the book aren't is 21st century Western normal. And 21st century Western normal, tired, wired, stressed, right, has a really consistent signature for all of us. And it's generally speaking, our brain is cranking along in fairly fast-moving beta waves, uh, which are you know generally congruent 
with activity in our prefrontal cortex and our executive functioning self, meaning who I think I am. So my biography, who I am behind my eyes, that storytelling, meaning-making machine, Mm -hmm. along with my ability to think about my thinking, delay gratification, engage in abstract reasoning, long-term, you know, long-term planning, all those kind of things that make us the clever monkeys we are. Mm -hmm. So that's going on. Now, the challenge is that as we've evolved that capacity over the last thousand years, but, you know, on turbocharge, really since the French Enlightenment. You know, you've got Rene Descartes saying, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am, the era of the rational individual. We've really amped that up to the point of almost to the breaking point. And in fact, there's, you know, there's some arguments that that self-awareness has done all sorts of great things for us, right? It's gave us, given us the scientific revolution. It's given us democratic revolution. It's given us the evolution of civil rights and free market democracy and capitalism, all, all sorts of amazing breakthroughs. But the one glitch was that we forgot to build an off switch. And so we've become trapped in this hyper-aware self-referential self-consciousness. And that experience is actually incredibly stressful. So to be a monkey, right, dodging the saber-toothed tiger, right, if I'm away from a threat, I'm back to being a monkey. I'm living large. But to be a human aware that I'm that monkey and that I'm here for a brief moment and then I die and the, the universe is vast and devours my significance in a gulp, you know, that's a sumbitch, right? And so typically, you know, the, the kinds of fight or flight responses that are baked into us, that are, that are evolutionarily imprinted, we get norepinephrine, we get a shot of adrenaline, we get cortisol, which, you know, I mean, all these things do great stuff for us in momentary threats. Right, they shunt blood from the extremities. They increase our heart rate. They dilate our pupils. They give us better peripheral vision. They heighten our reaction time. They leave us ready to live and you know survive for another day. But in 21st century Western normal, that's the conversation I'm having while stuck in traffic for an hour and a half, rehashing a conversation with my pathological boss. Yeah. That's the conversation I'm having at 3 a.m. when I can't sleep, and I'm and, I, and I'm going over a fight that was unresolved with my spouse from the day before, mm-hmm. right? And that steady drip, drip, drip of that fight or flight arousal with no place to put it and no way to turn it off, that's what's killing us. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, anxiety, I mean, one in four of us, at least in the United States, are on psychiatric medication. That's 25% of us that are basically saying, I am so out of whack, I am gonna take a pharmaceutical that's expensive, has abundant side effects, only works marginally, just to try, just as a shot of rolling the dice yeah. to change this channel. Yeah. So, so that's that's what it isn't, right? Uh, is is twenty first century normal? And most of us are stuck there. We've only got one channel to choose from. But these non ordinary states of which flow is one of the most you know easy and ubiquitous to access. All that changes. And so instead of an overactive prefrontal cortex with a hyperactive inner critic, you know, second guessing and commenting on everything, um, our brain tends to quieten down. That part of our brain shuts off and ceases to be as active. Our brain waves, that executive function firing along solving problems, slows down into a more relaxed alpha, kind of alert, perceiving, but not necessarily thinking specifically about any one thing, all the way down to theta, which is almost more kind of dreamy, quasi-hypnotic, that kind of state we get just as we're drifting off into sleep, Mm -hmm. right? Our stress chemicals like nitric oxide is in our bloodstream. It's a neurotransmitter. It flushes away the stress chemicals. Our heart rate slows down. 
We replace stress and fight or flight chemicals with feeling, you know, feel good and learning and reward chemicals like, like dopamine, saying, yes, you know, this is, this is important, pay attention, endorphins, which ease pain and create mild to, mo- to moderate euphoria. Those are the, you know, basically the internal equivalent of, of opioids or morphine. Anandamide, which is the equivalent of a cannabinoid, which again, eases pain. People used to think that runner's high was all about endorphins. Researchers now think it has as much to do, if not more, with anandamide. So it's a pain or bliss producer and prompts more lateral connections between unusual subjects. And then if you're doing it in conjunction with others, there's often an additional release of oxytocin, pair bonding, trust, intimacy, uh, as well as serotonin. And the serotonin system is infinitely complex, but in a minimum can, you know, can relate to increased feelings of well-being and, and, and sort of satisfaction. So that is what happens remarkably consistently in a whole suite of these non-ordinary states, what we've been calling ecstasis. Flow states are one of them meditation and mystical states and then finally psychedelic states those that are pharmacologically primed and you know there's obviously you know if people have been sort of reading that you can't really get away from the recent research on the psychedelic renaissance the work of johns hopkins nyu college of london everywhere else and so all those bundled together i mean there's tons of press coverage about each of these verticals but but the piece that's been missing and the piece that we really hope to communicate in this book is oh there's actually a bigger thing going on. It matters less which of these doors you step through than it does the actual state, the space, the experience, and the benefits of once you step through that door into this shared terrain. Yeah, yeah, I love it. When I was in LA and just kind of just interviewing various people there, it, there was this sort of subculture of people who were paying attention to this work that you guys were doing at the Flow Genome Project. And I mean, hmm. what would you what would you say is the noticeable kind of similarity between these people who are high performance, I don't know, engineers, people who are looking for this kind of thrill and these Navy SEALs and then these sort of soccer moms that are reading Fifty Shades, as, as you said earlier, like, where do you see a, the similarity between these people? Are we inherently looking for this sort of flow state in ourselves? Yeah, I mean, you know, interestingly enough, we were teaching at the Esalen Institute up in Big Sur a couple of years ago, and there was a woman, she was, I mean, a sort of soccer mom on steroids from down in San Diego. She came up and she was describing how she'd come to our work and flow in general, and she was also like a CrossFit nut. And she sort of confessed, and that was actually one of the data points that kind of became the seeds of this book, because she, she was describing, like, I do CrossFit because, yes, I'm, uh, you know, I was an athlete in college, blah, 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 but she did it to get her fix. She did it because it was the only way she was able to basically work herself into exercise-induced flow and be, uh, be absent the pains and discomforts of an unhappy marriage. And I was like, oh, wow. And, and she, she, was, she was a little concerned by it. She's like, I feel this is a little addictive. I feel, <laughs> right? This is, this is maybe not the most balanced way, but it's the best thing I've got right now. So Bron Siegel, uh, a professor at UCLA, has made a case that, you know, birds do it, bees do it, educated fleas do it, right? I mean, the idea that the drive to shift consciousness is pervasive throughout the animal kingdom. 
And that's everything from, you know, elephants raiding breweries or drinking from for fermented mud holes <laughs> to reindeer eating to reindeer eating, you know, um, Amanita muscaria mushrooms to baboons uh, guzzling iboga psychedelic root from Africa. <laughs> like basically every, they, all animals do it include up to and including primates and humans. And so he makes the case that. The, you know, because you would think that like getting twisted as far as being an animal is probably not the best evolutionary strategy. You know, you're going to get picked off like, like a sitting duck, right? So the question is, is why wasn't this behavior aberrant and just edited out of the gene pool really quickly? Yeah. And so he and psychologist Edward de Bono and others have advanced the notion that, hey, what it serves, it gets us out of ruts. The ability to shift our consciousness from waking state, again, fight or flight routine into something novel, into those eureka moments, those aha moments, the your chocolate and my peanut butter moments, the here's the silly putty or the slinky or the post-it note idea, right? Those lateral leaps of de-patterning uh, introduce novelty into first our brains and minds and then into our culture and our artifacts, and that that is a positive thing. So Siegel makes the case, hey, this desire to shift states of consciousness is actually arguably our fourth evolutionary drive you know, um, sort of behind only food, water, and sex. Hmm. And so once you realize that, you ask, well, who, you know, what unites all of these folks, these crazy little sub-tribes? I mean, right, I mean, flow has been the domain of artists and athletes, hmm. and meditation has been the domain of kind of saints and mystics, and psychedelics have been the domain of hippies and ravers, hmm. and never, never, the, never the three shall meet, yeah. you, you know? But what is, what it does unite them is our shared humanity, and that fourth evolutionary drive, that yearning for something more than 21st century normal. And, and you can, you know, you, I mean, 50 Shades of Grey, we were kind of joking about it, but it's actually an incredibly good test case because, you know, and anybody who even read a, a, a paragraph of that book could realize it was doggerel verse. It was not, um, it was not within a country mile of a work of literature. Mm. And yet that book, sold more copies than the entire seven volume series of Harry Potter combined. Wow. So that's a true what the fuck moment. You're like, seriously, like how is that possible? There's no correlation between quality. There's no character development. There's no profound message, right? This is about, this is a poorly written bit of Harlequin romance about <laughs> medio mediocrely told BDSM from a woman who's clearly never experienced any of it. And it was off the charts. So, right? so you think, okay, so what is it, right? And so you can make a case that all that, all of that repressed suburban femininity and womanhood, right? Women who were clearly undersatisfied in their full erotic expression were reading that book and going, ah, yes, here, just intuitively, here is the path to something more. And if you compare that to like electronic dance music is another great example where, where EDM music these days, in fact, Tomorrowland, which is a festival in the Netherlands, just went on sale this week. It sold out in, I think, 50 minutes hmm. and it plays two weekends and it's hundreds of thousands of tickets and it sold out in minutes, six hmm. months ahead of being offered. And you're like, okay, well, that's interesting because why do most folks go to concerts? Well, they really have a, you know, they have a crush on one of the band members or they love the story like the Beatles or Bruce Springsteen. They love the songs and the lyrics. They all love to be there with their friends, you know, arm in arm. There's some communal bonding moment. Well, in EDM, there's some dude in a hoodie with a laptop, you know, and he presses play and then pumps his hand in the air at the drops. <laughs> that's kind of it. Right. And, and, and you've got and so, so there's no music. There's no I mean, there's no lyrics. There's no band and personalities. There's, you know, strip out 
70% of everything that people used to go to see live music for. And you're like, well, what is there instead? And not unlike Fifty Shades of Grey, what there is, is highly concentrated state-shifting technology. You have these high-end, high-fidelity sound stacks, often function one sound systems that separate highs, lows, and middles in a way that like ceases to be just listening to music. It's basically like going to a sonic car wash and standing in front of a, you know, standing in front of a sort of acoustic water pick. You're just getting your body rearranged by sound waves. Mm -hmm. And there's lasers and there's typically lots of mind-bending substances. And there's this great crowd entrainment of a quarter of a million people at a time losing their mind and dropping into something else together. And that is now worth 48% of the entire ticket sales on the planet right now. Mm, yeah. You got private equity guys, you got Wall Street guys, they're all piling money into these things because they're realizing, oh, wow, state changing technologies is what's up right now. Everybody is moving beyond from, you know, from experience economy stuff like Starbucks or Cheesecake Factory or Cabela's outdoor stores you know, into transformation economy stuff. If you can help me become someone I wasn't at the beginning of this experience, the, the margin I'm willing to pay you is off the charts. Mm, yeah, it's it's so profound. I mean, I, you know, when you're studying these sort of spiritual renaissances of, you know, these awakening ideas of electronic dance music and these women who are kind of obsessed with this book because this desire that it creates in them or more, you know, have you noticed that because we live in such a connected age that it made your research easier or more accessible? <laughs> well, I mean, one of the things we noticed is we kept running into the same people around the world. And, and that was kind of another one of the big sort of like pause and really just like, let's just gut check. Are we seeing what we think we're seeing? So, you know, there is, and I'll say this with all self-awareness that this sounds hyperbolic, you know, but there is fundamentally an underground initiate brotherhood hmm. of technomatic glitterati, alpha hippies. And they, and they go from everything from Davos and Ted to Coachella and South by and Burning Man. They hang, they're hanging out at these high-end gatherings. They are mostly globally mobile, um, you know, in either running companies, founding companies, post-liquidity events. They're living, they're living a large life and, and plug into these re repeated initiatory experiences with each other and then go back and seed culture with it. I mean, that was, you know, I had, we were invited to speak at the TEDx event at Burning Man a couple of years ago and then got to participate in kind of this salon with some of the founders. And at the time, they were wondering if and how they were going to purchase a permanent chunk of land to host Burning Man culture and events. And Larry Page and Sergey Brin and Elon Musk and lots of Tony Shea and lots of other people were involved. But at this gathering were, you know, partners from Goldman Sachs, heads of the World Economic Forum the CEO of the largest ad agency on the planet. You know, people, you're like, wait a second, this is long, this is way past just Silicon Valley freaks and misfits trucking out, you know, for a weekend in the desert. This is a globally connected bunch of folks, folks from the Pentagon, you know, like major players. And they are literally coming together to share what you could make a case is a sort of modern day rite of Eleusis, right? A modern day initiatory mystery cult. And people are having these experiences. They are impacting their personal lives deeply, but also 
impacting their professional lives and, and, and creating this kind of just below the waterline network of initiates that sort of know each other with a nod and a wink and a secret handshake. <laughs> and they're moving money, they're moving capital, they're moving, they're moving talent, they're moving IP, they're creating new companies, they're, they're creating new partnerships. And this is kind of the new way that businesses gets done. I mean, it's like the Masons and the Elks Lodges are done and over with, are pretty much dead on arrival. And what's emerging now is we're just seeing this, as I said, just this sort of technomatic glitterati, these folks that are sharing in this experience. It creates high trust, high intimacy. Um, and a shared degree of inspiration coming from similar sources. And that arguably is one of the most driving forces um, seeding culture these days. And no one's really talking about it. Mm, yeah. I mean, you guys are now, right? And <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it's really great because you're researching, you know, creativity, consciousness. And, and this is what I love to talk about. I love to just explore this idea of, you know, being more connected to ourselves, getting into this sort of flow state. You know, it just, it blows me away, the, the research that you guys have come up with. And, you know, I'm just, I'm paging through your book now. And, you know, something that you bring up is uh, Alexander Shuglin. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how many of our listeners know who he is. Can you, can you give us an idea of how impactful Sasha's work was for, you know, yeah. psychedelics and and our awareness? Sure. So Sasha just died, I suppose, a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago now. So this may be one of the first sort of monograph treatment slash hat tips. Um, to him uh, and his legacy, uh, and, and, and certainly, you know, with, with full appreciation and respect from, from our end on that. Sasha was a boy genius. He was admitted to Harvard on a full scholarship, I think, at the age of 15. He then dropped out to join the Navy right after World War II, ended up being a young sort of Wunderkind chemist for Dow Chem. He, within a few years, invented one of the first biodegradable pesticides, which made them gajillions of dollars and effectively gave him a blank slate to do whatever the hell he wanted afterwards. And he basically got, became fascinated with uh, the compound mescaline, which is a psychoactive. It's prevalent in uh, San Pedro cactuses, which you can get at landscaping stores or Home Depots if you want. But I mean, he, he had extracted it. He's like, wow, this one little tiny molecule completely changed my life. This was also what Alice Huxley wrote about in The Doors of Perception. And Sasha was like, hey, if that's possible, and because obviously he had mad skills in the chem lab, he's like, well, what if I just tweak a little hydrogen bond? What if I just tweak, tweak a little carbon chain? And he began modifying these compounds. And so just to give you perspective, in the 19, by the 1950s, I think there were 20 to 30 known psychedelic, psychoactive kind of compounds, ones that truly had a mind-impacting effect. Mm-hmm. And by the time he had completed his research, there was something something like 250. Yeah. And, and the one that he's most well-known for is not the discovery of MDMA or what is commonly known as ecstasy or molly, but he revived it. It was originally developed by Merck in Germany back in the teens or 20s. And he just, he just you know, resurfaced it, began experimenting with it, and was like, oh, wow. And this was before it was called ecstasy. It was at the time it was called empathy. I mean, it was available during the 60s. The, the hippies just weren't interested in it, which is, I think, another kind of interesting thing as far as cultural timing and that kind of stuff, as was DMT, which is another psychedelic that has received all sorts of attention lately. But this, the hippies had access to all this stuff and they didn't pick them, which I think, again, if you overlay anthropology and culture onto pharmacology, you realize, oh, this, a lot of this stuff's been rattling around. But mm. Sasha found it, was like, hey, this really does increase because it interacts with the serotonin system. It tends to increase feelings of safety, security, well-being, belonging, and it can act as, as a profound sort of opener for psychotherapeutic processing. 
And being a you know highly credentialed professional that he was, he turned on some of his psych- psychiatrist and psychotherapist friends and said, hey, you may want to consider conducting therapy with this compound as an adjunct, which they did. And there became this kind of underground movement that was, you know, con- con- you know, consider- um, considerably uh, not, un- well, not unlike the uh, 1950s, 60s use of LSD in psychotherapy, where Cary Grant and Jack Nicholson and a lot of folks, if anybody saw Mad Men and saw those, uh, those episodes, that was how it was, right? It wasn't freaks and misfits, you know, it would stop. They got this started. This was high-end intelligentsia, mm-hmm. you know, sharing the keys to the kingdom. And so Sasha popularized it, and then it kind of leaked out. And by the time that, you know everyone else knows the rest of the story, by the time the early '80s in Dallas and elsewhere, it became kind of a, a club drug and all those kind of things, and then got shut down. But Sasha was one of the ones to to really popularize it. But interestingly, he was working for the DEA the whole time, and so he was actually he won awards for publishing the best law enforcement chemical resource book, um, you know, to date. So the DEA was, he was constantly serving as an expert witness and testifying and doing all kinds of stuff. He was the subject matter expert, you know, in, in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Then they were like, hey, wait a second, man, you, you know, you're kind of getting a little out of hand. And he's like, okay, I need to get this information out. And so he published two books, which were sort of 50-50, these chemical love stories between him and his wife, Anne, like their adventures and explorations, mm, yeah. discovery. That was really what sort of cemented his place in countercultural lore, because he took a stand for open sourcing ecstasis. He said, look, these compounds are human birthrights. They shouldn't be locked down or patented or owned or, or, or sanctioned. Humans have a right for them. All the way to today, where we now have 3D printers with as little as vegetable oil and paraffin wax, you can punch in the coating for any compound you want and spit out on the other side, right, whatever molecule you're interested in fabricating. So we've gone from Sasha doing these, you know, what bioassays, which is a fancy way of saying do it yourself and take notes, mm-hmm. to open sourcing the cookbooks to now totally democratize means of production. Where anybody anywhere with a Wi-Fi and a, and a 110 volt outlet can fabricate whatever molecules they're interested in exploring. That's amazing. That's so profound. I find that <laughs> that's. I mean, we're in the age of this new Enlightenment era that I don't think humanity's ever seen before, and you know, it just it blows me away. And the reason you know the reason that I brought up Alexander Shuglin was because I wanted to get into these Silicon Valley architects taking low doses of LSD to solve complex problems. Can you, can you talk about that a bit, please? Yeah, sure. And, and then I also want to make sure we kind of get to like the stakes of the game as well. So if we yeah. can kind of put a pin in that. Sure. I feel like that's critical versus just sort of like feel-good boosterism. Of course. But, you know, in, in a sense, right? Um, and this started with James Fadiman way back in the 60s. If anybody's been following the, cult, the current kind of microdosing trend, in fact, Islet Waldman's just come out with her book about her, her microdosing on LSD for a month. So that's kind of everywhere in the New York Times and, and, and the New Yorker and elsewhere. But fundamentally, there's been this idea that there's sort of the macro dose. Again, that's what the stereotypically the hippies did, like just hook down as much as you possibly can, blast off to the back of beyond, see what happens, cross your fingers, hope for the best. Right. And the opposite of microdosing, microdosing has also got potentially, arguably, even a more interesting history, which is what happens when you take subperceptual threshold amounts of these things. And the subperceptual means the walls don't melt. I don't have any visual distortions. I may not even have any subjective emotional noticeable differences, but other than just, you know, greater uh, cognitive acuity. Mm-hmm. And so way back in the 60s, he took a bunch of engineers from HP and Stanford and elsewhere and said, OK, the, the sole criteria to enter this experiment is six months. You've been working on a hard engineering or technical problem you haven't been able to solve. Come on in. 
We're going to give you micro doses of LSD or mescaline, depending on the control group, and then see how you do still going back and trying to solve those problems. And, you know, they ended up with something like nine patentable or fundable breakthroughs and devices, including complex stuff, linear gate accelerators and photon, you know, photon measurements and, you know, really high end high-tech stuff. And most people reported, you know, somewhere around 180 to 220% increase in, in, in you know, performance acuity and lateral problem solving. Mm-hmm. He's since, he based that all went underground. It got completely shut down for four decades. Um, he has been since lately, he's been doing a crowdsource kind of clandestine approach where he's basically saying, here's the protocols, do them if you want, write back in anonymously and we'll share the results. And they got over 400 people having done it today. And again, similar results over, you know, the majority of people saying, I have better access to lateral pattern recognition problem solving you know, and the ability to generate insets via new ideas. And if you combine what Fadiman's been doing, which is largely just, hey, this is a crowdsourced experiment. Let me just aggregate the information, the feedback. Um, if, you know, if you take a look at what Robin Carhart Harris is doing over the Imperial College of London, then you really see something interesting. You start understanding the mechanism of actions behind it all. Because what he was doing is he started his graduate work interested in studying the subconscious, a kind of Jungian analysis, what the hell's going on under there, that kind of thing. And he was really limited to basically blunt instrument tools, self-reporting, dream analysis, slips of the tongue, all the things that would suggest there's something else to me than what I'm trying to manage up front, <laughs> right? And he was really underwhelmed by this, like, man, this is some clunky-ass tools to try and plot the deepest depths of our minds. So that's when he first got turned on to, hey, what if we start using pharmacological priming, specifically MDMA and LSD and psilocybin, so that we can then put someone in a measurement, a complex medical measurement device, like an fMRI, which measures blood flow and, and, and magnetic, magnetic activity through the brain, and can then, can we see what's going on in our subconscious a little bit more, a little bit more reliably? So what he found was, A, that our self is not simply, doesn't just live in one place, including the prefrontal cortex that we talked about earlier. It's not a sole location that houses me, right? Rather, our self is this loosely strung together network of nodes throughout our brain. And that just like in kind of Star Wars, right, if you shoot, if you knock down even one or two of those nodes, the whole grid collapses. So that ego disintegration that is often talked about in meditative experiences, psychedelic experiences, flow states, is a, is kind of a, it's a pretty apt metaphor that our sense of self can literally disintegrate when a couple of those nodes are knocked out via whatever mechanism. Could be, you know, hyperventilation and breathing practices, could be psychedelics, et cetera. And he also discovered something else, which is under the influence of these psychedelics, what is happening is that you are getting disparate and far-flung connections, not just, ooh, I've connected you know, idea A to idea B, but rather zone A of my brain is connecting to zone C, D, and E of my brain. And they're now talking to each other in ways that they don't under normal waking states. So to go to to loop this all back together, you've got Fadiman way back in the 60s, starting with this microdosing, coming to now, and then being in in conjunction with some of the, you know, neurobiological measurements like Hart Harris is doing in London. And really, one of the most interesting things is like, a lawful lot of this has to do with our serotonin systems and our serotonin receptors. So psilocybin, LSD, and serotonin were all getting deeply studied in the 50s and 60s, mm-hmm. right? Then came the federal lockdown on all psychedelic research in the 60s and then you know, really and truly in the, in the early 70s. And basically, all research on the serotonin system got crunched down to SSRI, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, Prozac, Zoloft, et cetera. So we got these weak-ass drugs with tons of side effects that only work in a handful of people and, and pound you 
with complications for months and years afterwards. And they only work as long as you're actively taking them. And they cost a bundle, by the way, they're patented, right? So that's what we got out of the serotonin system for the last four decades. We got Prozac Nation. Yeah. And instead, what we're seeing now is a resurgence in access to and information on a bunch of other substances that interact with our serotonin system in arguably far higher impact, far lower side effect, you know, lower consequence kind of ways, which is the antithesis of the social story, the antithesis of the PTA moms talking about, you know, you know, stamps getting passed out to kids or, you know, some kid, somebody who thought he was a banana and ends up in an insane asylum. We're like, oh, no, no, this is all serotonin system shit. And it's super interesting and beneficial and just in time because there's a bunch of really depressed, anxious, unhappy folks these days. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, you know, and, and you mentioned this earlier, you, you said something about a psychedelic renaissance. There does seem to be this this sort of trend happening with, you look at maps and the work they're doing and the, the way they're moving into, like, I think they're in phase three or four trials of MDMA and they're aiming to have MDMA legal to where you can get it prescribed by your doctor and you're suffering from PTSD or depression and, you know, you go to your doctor and you ask for this and finally these doors are kind of opening for us. I, I feel like our consciousness collectively has been held back. Is that the right word? Would you would you use a similar word? Yeah, I mean, I would. You know, we 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 talk about in the book the idea of just there are state-sanctioned states of consciousness, and they persist. You know, there are certain states and there are certain access points to those states that are reinforced and and, and endorsed despite the evidence, and there are others that are actively repressed and suppressed despite the evidence. And we are entering a place of, you know, an open source revolution where we have access not only to the, key, the keys to our cage, you know, but the keys to the kingdom. You have been listening to The Human Experience and that was our guest, Mr. Jamie Wheel. You definitely want to hear the rest of this interview along with the other content that we have on the member side. Get to thehumanxp.com slash members. It's under construction, but it will be available eventually. Pre-order your spot now at this discounted price and you can hear all the content that we're providing for you. This is this is the way that we're able to keep the show running and keep the, the show alive for you guys and and make the content special enough and you know we really go out of our way to do that so hopefully you believe in us enough to support our work and what we're doing here thank you guys so much for listening and see you guys next week 